Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Join me this morning in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. And I want to speak to you this morning on the subject, God's unlikely champion, the shepherd boy who made his name famous in all the earth. And let me go ahead and, and read just a section of chapter 17, though we will work our way through its entirety by showing you where this story is intended to go, and uh, I probably will preach this uh, this morning differently than maybe you have heard it in the past, and uh, not to uh, disparage anyone that has preached it differently, uh, but I think these verses in particular help us see where we should be going in our understanding of this very well-known story. Look at just with me verse 45 through verse 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. There's no question that David and Goliath is one of the most popular and well-known stories in the Bible. And yet, because we know it so well, it may be that we don't understand it as we should. We don't see it and understand it as God intended. Uh, To say it another way, we fail to see the little story in light of the big story of the Bible. You see, the story of David and Goliath is not about the bigger they are, the harder they fall. That is not what the story is about. Rather, I believe the story is about missions. I believe the story is about the glory of God. I believe the story is about the drama of salvation. I believe the story, like all the stories of the Bible, ultimately points us to the greater son of David, that being the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's put it in context very quickly. God made a a, a good world. He made a world where everything flourished and functioned as he intended. We read that in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. But then Adam and Eve yielded to the temptation of the serpent Satan and plunged the whole world into sin. We read about this in Genesis chapter 3. But as soon as they had plunged the world into sin, God shows up and God makes a promise in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. I would argue this morning that that may be the most important verse in all the Bible because Genesis 3.15 provides for us the platform for the unfolding drama of redemption. 
And there we are told by our God that he will indeed uh, send one whose heel will be bruised, but who will also in the process crush the head uh, of the serpent Satan and gain for his people a great victory. It is clearly a hermeneutical key for us rightly understanding the totality of God's word. Later, God will call out for himself a particular people, beginning with a man by the name of Abram, later known as Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, he makes a promise to Abraham and says, To you and your descendants, uh, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And then, interestingly, in Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 16, the Bible actually says those who blaspheme and curse God and his people, uh, they shall surely be put to death. And guess how the Bible says they shall be put to death? They shall be put to death by stoning. Is it setting the stage for this story? I believe that it is. And so this, in some sense, provides the backdrop of the drama that unfolds this day there in the Valley of Elah, where a man by the name of David takes on a giant by the name of Goliath. And once more, let me be clear, this particular story is not to challenge you and me to to dare to be a David. In fact, I would argue that it is our sinful tendency that causes almost all of us, myself included, to want to identify with David in the story, I would submit to you this morning that the people you should be identifying with in this story is the Hebrew children. You need to be identifying yourself with the children of Israel because like them, you need a champion. Like them, you need someone to go out and fight the giant that being sin and death and hell and the grave on your behalf because you have no hope of defeating that giant on your own. You need someone who can do it for you. You need someone who can step in and be your champion. So because we identify, I think, wrongly with David, we miss the import of what it is that God really wants us to understand. You see, I think what God has in mind is that we would embrace the truth of Psalm 96 and verse 4 where the Bible says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And so this is a story about a little David who slew a little giant who typifies and points to a greater David named Jesus who will destroy and slay the greater giants that seek to undo you and seek your doom and destruction. No, uh, David Platt, who will be here next Tuesday, is exactly right. The point of the story is not to be brave in the face of giants. The point of the story is to be passionate for the glory of God. This is, by the way, one of the longest and most detailed stories in all of the Bible. It's the longest story you find in the Bible about David. And interestingly, outside of the Lord Jesus, the Bible has more to say about this man by the name of David than anybody else in all of Scripture. And this particular story, which is so well known to all of us, teaches us some wonderfully important truths. It teaches us that God topples the strong and the proud like Saul and like Goliath. And that God indeed delights in exalting the lowly and the humble like David and like Jesus. Furthermore, the story is told slowly and almost dramatically for full effect. And so as we walk through it, and and hear this very carefully now, as we walk through it, if you begin to get the feeling we've been here later, not before, 
But you begin to get the feeling we've been here later. And I believe what God intended for you and me to understand will be taking place as we walk through this particular text. Note with me then, first of all, in verses 1 through 16. God has his enemies that will mock and oppose him and oppose the advance of his kingdom. Look at what it says there in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belonged to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. Of course, we know that the Philistines and Israel were mortal enemies. They were arch enemies. The hostilities have gone back for a long time. Actually, the Philistines appear in the Bible as early as Genesis chapter 10 and verse 14. And since the days of Joshua and the judges, the Hebrews and the Philistines have battled regularly off and on both over the land, but also over religion. In fact, this story really boils down to answering uh, two particular questions. One, who is really God? And secondly, who should you trust and follow? And so what takes place this day in the Valley of Elah is really not just a physical contest. It is a deeply spiritual contest as well. Of course, if you're familiar with the earlier part of Samuel, you note that uh, earlier in this book, there had already been an engagement with the Philistines and the Israelites. And Israel had done uh, very poorly. In fact, they had been routed. And the Ark of the Covenant had been captured and taken into the temple of Dagon. That was not a good thing for Dagon. Because if you go to chapter 5, you discover that after spending a few days with the Ark of the Covenant, he lost his hands, he lost his head, and he fell over on his face. And so it had not been a good time. And as quick as they could, they got rid of that Ark of the Covenant. And so again, Israel is confronted with their arch enemies, the idolatrous and pagan Philistines. But this time the Philistines are pretty convinced uh, that they're going to win the battle again. In fact, they're convinced this time they have an absolutely unbeatable hand, and so they are ready to play it. Now, note a couple of things that we learned from this passage about those who oppose the advance of the kingdom of God, both here in our land and literally across the earth. First of all, the enemies of God are often fearful in their appearance. We note that the Philistines have gathered there in the valley of Elah, opposing the forces of Israel. You've got one on one mountainside and one on the other. And verse 3 tells us, And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, with Israel on the mountain on the other, with this valley between them. And uh, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion, Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, a really bad translation, by the way. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his leg, the javelin uh, of bronze slung between his shoulders, the shaft of his spear like a weaver's beam. His spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. They gather here in the valley of Elah, west of Bethlehem, about 17 miles from Jerusalem. And as they are gathered there, suddenly out of the Philistine camp emerges their champion. What a name, Goliath from Gath. By the way, the word champion occurs only in this particular chapter uh, in all the Bible. It occurs here and again in verse 23. It literally means the man between. 
And the idea is a mediator. Uh, the man between two armies. A mediator. A representative. In other words, he comes out to specifically represent those who are opposing the one true and living God. Uh, translating things into uh, our common vernacular, he is basically nine feet, nine inches tall. And his coat of mail literally could be translated, and I think should be translated, scale armor, S-C-A-L-E. You say, what's the importance of that? Well, almost all the scholars would agree that he had either the appearance uh, in terms of what he looked like of, of a fish, of a crocodile, it's a word that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to speak of the sea monsters that are used often in imagery as that which opposes God. But some have even pointed out that the word is easily connected to the scales of a snake. Furthermore, the word for bronze that occurs in this text is absolutely related in its root form to the word serpent. And so I am highly uh, convinced that it is almost certain that this giant named Goliath had nothing less than the giant appearance of a serpent, of a snake. And if that is true, don't you imagine that Genesis 3.15 at least should have been running through the minds of the Israeli, Israeli people, the Hebrew children, as they look at this giant man? Furthermore, his scale of armor weighed 126 pounds. His spear weighed about 15 pounds, and his shield-bearer was carrying a shield, no doubt, the size of a normal man. Wow. What an intimidating opponent. What an intimidating champion. A, a giant clothed like a serpent now opposing the people of God, and they are fearful. They are terrified, and yet they should have remembered what was said in just the previous chapter where there Samuel speaks to Jesse and speaks to his sons and tells us in verse 7, do not look on his appearance, speaking there of Saul, by the way, or on his height or his stature, because I have rejected him, that is, I rejected Saul, for the, the Lord sees, not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And by the way, if that's how God judges people, that's how we should judge and look at people as well. God doesn't judge others based on their appearance, and neither should we. But the enemies of God are often fearful in their appearance. Secondly, the enemies of God are often boastful with their words. Yeah, Goliath was truly intimidating in terms of his appearance, but he was also insulting with his words. Look at what the Bible says there, beginning with verse 8. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And by the way, if you look over at verse 16, it notes that for 40 days, 
The Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Basically, Goliath challenges the Israelites to a winner-take-all death match. Uh, this is a high-stakes contest where only one person will be left standing. And according to verse 16, he did this day after day after day after day after day. Forty days and nights, day after day in the wilderness, this serpent champion tempts and insults the people of God. And yet he again would have benefited had he paid attention to a prayer that had previously been uttered in the book of Samuel by the wonderful woman Hannah, who in chapter one, or chapter two, excuse me, in verse three says, and I quote, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is God, is a God of knowledge and by Him our actions are weighed. And then in verse six and verse seven of that same passage, the Lord kills. And brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. And God is about to use the weak to shame the strong. To quote 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And poor old Goliath, he never even sees it coming. But yeah, the enemies of God are often fearful in their appearance. And they're often boastful with their words. But thirdly... The enemies of God also often discourage and terrify us. Goliath has thrown down the gauntlet, but no one in Israel is willing to pick it up. Not even their great king Saul, of whom the Bible says in 1 Samuel 9 and verse 2, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And yet even though he was their giant, uh, he was not willing to take on this giant And indeed, look at what verse 11 says. They were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. Drop down and look at verse 24, which adds, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him, number one, and they were much afraid. Not a man could be found who would face Goliath. Not their warrior king, not their commanders, not a single soldier among the ranks of Israel was willing to go one-on-one with this giant. No, Israel at this point in time needed something better. They needed something different. They needed a new king. and They needed a new champion to fight their cause. They needed, if you like, a, a better Adam. They needed a man like Moses, a warrior like Joshua who would step forward and crush the head of this serpent champion. What they actually needed was a good shepherd. A little shepherd lad over there in Bethlehem who was simply doing his duty as a faithful son. It would be this shepherd that would give them courage. It would be this shepherd who would save the day. In fact, I love the way my friend James Merritt said it. They needed the one God had been preparing for the big thing by teaching him to be faithful in the little things. What a great word for all of us this morning, especially you all who sit before me as students. God, indeed, wants you to be faithful in the little things before he gives you the big thing. In fact, why should God give you a responsibility for a big thing if you're not being faithful with the little things? And so God has his enemies that will mock and oppose the advance of his king. But now the story really gets good. Secondly, God raises up his servant who will trust in God and defend the Lord's name. 
You really can't understand chapter 17 without also going back and looking at its immediate context in chapter 16, in particular verses 6 through 13. There you meet for the first time a man by the name of Jesse uh, and his sons. And there you meet for the very first time in the Bible a young man by the name of David, of whom verse 13 of chapter 16 says, The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. And so it is this one that God is going to raise up who will defend his name and defeat the snake-scaled enemy of God's people. You know, Israel had asked for a king uh, back in chapter 8 and verse 24 of 1 Samuel. They asked for a king who would go out before us and would fight our battles. They knew they needed a champion. Uh, they knew they needed a mediator. And, and so they wanted Saul. And yet God did not have Saul in mind, but God had a little shepherd boy by the name of David. And why is it that David qualifies to be this champion, to be this, this mediator, to be this one who will defend the honor of the Lord? Well, six things are said about David in chapter 16 and chapter 17 that I'm going to point out to you very quickly. And again, uh, don't be surprised if you see these same characteristics being true of the greater son of David, that being the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one. David was the Lord's anointed. If you look at chapter 16 and verse 6, Samuel comes and when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But we discover it was not him. But no, what we do discover is the Lord's anointed that Samuel would recognize is going to be this one by the name of David. You see, the Lord's rejected Saul. Saul had his day, Saul had his opportunity, but because of his disobedience, because of his idolatry, the Lord had rejected him. And so the one that the uh, nation of Israel had asked God to give them, uh, one who had judged them like the rest of the nations, the Lord gave, but now the Lord takes away. And indeed, the Lord has a much different uh, uh, anointed one that he is going to use and that he is going to raise up as his man and as his king. And so David was the Lord's anointed king. Secondly, David had a heart after the Lord. Uh, most of us know chapter 16, verse 7. It's one of the most well-known verses in all the Bible. And yet it takes on a greater significance in context because clearly what the Lord is doing is contrasting little David with giant Saul. He's contrasting little David with giant Goliath. And so the Bible says there, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I rejected him. I rejected Saul. And by the way, he's going to reject Goliath in just a minute too. For, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God's not impressed with how one looks. God doesn't care how tall you are, your height. He doesn't care about your appearance or your stature. God is not impressed with externals. No, the Lord doesn't look on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the real you. The Lord looks at me and looks at you when no one else is around. And he sees who you are in your private life. But not only does he see the real you, he sees the part of you that no one else can see. He sees who you are on the inside. He sees what no one else can possibly know or see. I like what Chuck Swindoll says. 
God rejects the people-pleasers and exalts the God-pleasers. God notices the nobodies. God notices the nobodies. And as we walk through these next couple of verses, it will be very clear that, that nobody saw David except the Lord. And the Lord saw his heart. No, David was the Lord's anointed king. David was the Lord's chosen servant. Thirdly, David was, or David was uh, the Lord's uh, one who had the heart after the Lord. And then thirdly, David was the Lord's chosen servant. Three times in verses 8 through 10 in chapter 16, you will see the phrase, the Lord's chosen, the Lord's chosen, the Lord's chosen. He was the youngest, according to verse 11. And he was simply a keeper of sheep, and yet he was the Lord's chosen. Furthermore, he was the Lord's servant. Three times in chapter 17, in verse 32, in verse 34, and in verse 36, David is also called the Lord's servant. And again, if you know the whole story of the Bible, you have to, again, have images and at least uh, thoughts popping into your mind from Isaiah chapter 53, where you have the ultimate servant of the Lord. You say, well, Danny, what kind of servant was David? Look over in chapter 17 and look at what the Bible says in verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, speaking of Goliath. Your servant will go forth and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I, I caught him by his beard and I struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Why? Because he has defied the armies of the living God. Wow. This shepherd king in waiting had killed lions and he had killed bears, but how did he do it? Notice what he said, through the Lord who delivered me. And just as the Lord had delivered him from the bear and from the lion, he says, I'm equally convinced he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine, verse 37. You know, it is said of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And David indeed typifies that same promise as the Lord will prosper his hand as he plants a stone in the skull of this giant named Goliath. Yes, he was the Lord's chosen servant. Fourthly, he was blessed with the Spirit. When David was anointed by Samuel, it says in chapter 16 and verse 13 that the Spirit of the Lord rushed. Uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, took control. The, the NIV says, came powerfully upon David from that day forward. In other words, the Spirit of the Lord anointed him for his assignment as the shepherd king and as a savior of the people of Israel. Indeed, David from this day forward would be a Spirit-led, spirit Spirit-controlled man. And again, the analogies between David 
and our Lord are just too obvious to ignore because when He likewise was anointed for His public ministry and anointed to be our Savior at His baptism, the Spirit of the Lord came down and lighted upon Him. And when our Lord began His public ministry, He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And David was indeed blessed with the Spirit. But fifthly, David was also zealous for the honor of the living God. Let's do a little Bible reading for just a moment. Go back with me again to chapter 17, and let's just start reading there with verse, at verse 12. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, uh, who's, uh, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, uh, the firstborn, next to him, Abinadab, and the third, uh, Shammah. Uh, David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. Now, David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem, and for 40 days the Philistine uh, had come forward and took his stand morning and evening. So Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an effort of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp uh, to, your, to your brothers. Take them some supplies. Take them some victuals. Also, take these ten cheeses. Now, what you would do with ten cheeses, I don't know. But take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand, to their leader. Basically, you know what he was trying to do? He's trying to bribe him. Trying to see that if a little, you know, a uh, little money under the table might allow him to put his three boys in a better place, which of course would mean as far away from Goliath as possible. And he also says, and uh, check to see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now he's not going to bring a token back from them, uh, but he's going to bring a token back from Goliath. His head. Well, verse 19. Now Saul and they all, uh, and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment uh, as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And, and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and he ran. Uh, David never walks in this chapter, by the way. He's always running. He ran to the ranks and, and went to, the, to greet his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the mediator, the, the champion, the, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines. And he spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. Verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, one fled from him. And two, they were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel and the king. If, if you'll go out there and take him on, whoever you are, number one, he will enrich the man who kills him. He's going to make him rich. He's going to give him wealth and honor. Keep that in mind. Uh, with great riches. Secondly, he will give him his daughter. He's going to give him a bride. And thirdly, he will make his father's house free in Israel. He'll set him free from any taxation or obligation. And David said to the men who stood by him, Well, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy not just the armies uh, of Israel, but the armies of the living God? And so the people answered him in the same way. 
So shall it be done to the man who kills him. He's going to get rich. He's going to get a woman, uh, a bride, and, and he's going to be set free from any obligations. And the same will be true for all of those who are blood-related to him. Well, uh, David now has to deal with uh, his brothers who, like the brothers of our Lord, are not impressed with their brother. Now, Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and his anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Well, you little punk. Number one, you ought not even be here. And secondly, where are the few sheep that uh, we can only entrust you with? I mean, if you're not a loser in coming down here just to watch the show, you're a double loser for leaving the, the sheep behind. And now you're a triple loser because you're shooting your mouth off. I know your presumption. And, and you cannot miss the contrast here. I know the evil of your heart. Wow. God says he's a man after his heart. His brother says he has an evil heart. And David said, why? What have I done? Uh, was it not but a word? I'm just, just repeating what I heard from them. And I am calling this guy out for the, for the slime ball dog that he is. That's a Danny Aiken paraphrase, by the way. And, and, and so he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. David's gone back and forth from Jesse to Saul, home to front lines, brothers to family. Now he goes to bring a, a, a gift from his dad, goes to check on the boys. He immediately hears the daily taunting coming from Goliath. He sees that all the people are scared. He sees that Saul has promised a prize for the one that is willing to take him on. But I think this is the one thing I'd point out, and that is this. You know, this may have been the first time in David's life he'd ever heard someone mock and ridicule God in this matter. This is the first time he'd ever heard someone curse God's name. And, and it unsettled him. In fact, it not only unsettled him, it made him angry. And so others may run away from the giant blasphemer, verse 24. But David, as we will see in verse 48 in just a moment, will run toward him and fight zealously and bravely for the honor of the living God. And yes, David was indeed zealous for the honor of the living God. And then sixthly, David had faith that God would deliver him. If you look at chapter 17 and verse 37, David says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Then you go, and the Lord be with you. You see, David saw the giant as just another beast. He saw him as just another animal for the Lord to take down on his behalf. The paw of a lion, no problem, the Lord delivered me. The paw of a bear, no problem, the Lord delivered me. The paw, the hand of this snake man, no problem, the Lord will deliver me. And notice he does not say the Lord can deliver me. He says the Lord will deliver me. You see a giant, but I see a midget. When you put him beside the, the living God in verse 26 and 36, the, the Lord of hosts and God of armies, verse 45, the, the Lord who saves, verse 47. You see, David really did believe 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And so with the eyes of faith, David is going to fight this battle, but not fight it man's way, but fight it God's way. He knows and understands well as a man after God's own heart that God's ways are not our ways. And God loves to achieve victory, not through strength, but through weakness. And God loves to work through the nobodies far more than he likes working through the somebodies. 
And bottom line, David understood he was not fighting for God. He understood God was fighting for him. So that brings us to our third and final observation in the climax of our story. God will fight our battles, and he will give us victory to demonstrate his salvation. It's, it's showtime, main event. If Michael Buffer had been there of ESPN, HBO fame, he would have shouted to the top of his lungs, let's get ready to rumble. And most were ready for the bout, though they were all assured that it would be a first-round knockout, probably in record time. And they would be right. It is going to be a first-round knockout in, in record time. Of course, they believed David was going forth to this battle as nothing more than a, a lamb to the slaughter. They could not have even begun to imagine how all of this was going to unfold. Very quickly, let me note five things as this story comes to its conclusion about the way God fights for us. First of all, God is not concerned with the outward appearance. Verse 38 of chapter 17, Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. By the way, the phrase coat of mail is different in the Hebrew text from the prior coat of mail when we describe the apparel of Goliath. Well, David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go, but he had not tested them. And the implication is this ain't going to work. It doesn't fit. It's too heavy. He doesn't need it. David said to Saul, I cannot go out with these for I've not tested them. So he put them off. And all he took was his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine in this particular matter. Of course, we already know that he's going in the Spirit of the Lord, and so the Spirit of the Lord is really all that he is going to need. Verse 41, the Philistine then moved forward, came near to David with his shield bare in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. Uh, he ridiculed him. He, he, he mocked him. And, and he looked at him and said, my goodness, this, this youth, this ruddy, pretty boy in appearance, says handsome in appearance. The Philistine looked at him and said, am I a dog? That you come to me with sticks? Are you, you're nothing more than just a little stick and you're treating me like you think I'm nothing more than a dog? And he cursed David by his gods. And then the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. And Goliath had no idea of his impending doom. He had no idea that the fight was already fixed. And so he taunts David and tells David that soon he will be nothing more than meat for the birds and meat for the beast. And Goliath sees as man sees, and he sees nothing. Secondly, God will save those who trust in him. David, the man after God's own heart, saw the situation completely different than everybody else. It's why I read these verses first. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you how? In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled this day. The Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And, and here's the missionary impulse of this text that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel and that all this assembly, that is the people of Israel, may know that the Lord saves. 
And he does not say with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hands. To, to paraphrase it, if I might, I, I, by the way, it is interesting that David was capable of a little trash talk as well. Uh, and so he, he could, you know, come up and defend his team. And so he basically says this, look, you come to me with mere human weapons, a, a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come in the name and the power of the Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Son, you're toast and you don't even know it. You defied the Lord today and he will deliver you into my hands. In fact, I'll decapitate your head. I'll divide you for food between the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And then all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel and all the earth will know that it is God who saves. And brothers and sisters, the hero of the story of David and Goliath is not David. It is the Lord. And so the Bible makes it clear that God will fight for us. And then thirdly, God will keep his promise to crush the heads of our enemies. Verse 48 through 50, the enemies engaged, no contest. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. David, the Bible says in verse 48, ran quickly toward the battle line. He took his stone, he slung it, he struck the Philistine on the forehead. Don't miss this. And like his pagan idol god Dagon before the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Samuel 5, 4, he fell on his face to the ground. Verse 50 makes the interesting point that there was no sword in the hand of David. This was not an ordinary victory. No one had ever seen anything like this before, but God had promised his people all the way back in the garden of Eden that he would crush the heads of their enemies. And today in the valley of Elah, through little David, he had kept his word. And by the way, a thousand years later on a hill called Calvary, a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, God would again crush decisively once and for all the head of our great enemy, Satan, and put to uh, defeat death, hell, and the grave. Fourth observation. God will often use the weapons of our enemies to defeat our enemies. There's some debate as to exactly when uh, Goliath died. Uh, we don't know for sure. Some think the rock merely knocked him out. Others think the rock uh, did kill him. But regardless, verse 51, don't miss this, David ran again, stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath, and he killed him and cut off his head with it. In other words, he used the serpent champion's own weapon to climatically defeat him. And again, I would argue we have been here later because on the cross, our champion, our Savior, would defeat death by his death. It has been well said, there was the death of death in the death of Christ. And so as there was a great reversal on this day, there is even a greater reversal and a more marvelous salvation in that day. And then finally, fifthly, God allows his people to share in his victory. Colossians 2.15, which we read in chapel uh, yesterday, makes that so very clear. 
For time's sake, I'll just note in verses 51 through 52, the enemies of God fled for all to see. In verse 53, God's people experienced the joys of victory won by their champion. In verse 54, David made a public spectacle of Goliath's head in Jerusalem, the city he would later claim as his capital, and he furthermore claimed the giant's armor as his own. And David did what he did, according to verse 58, as the servant of his servant father and for his people. And once more, we understand that we've been here later. So let me conclude this morning very quickly. I know my time has gone short, uh, but I want you to see, as Paul Harvey would say, the, the rest of the story. In Ezekiel 34, 22 through 24, the Lord promised his people, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. God indeed sent his servant shepherd. His name is Jesus. And like his forefather David, but even more so, he would be the Lord's anointed, filled with the Spirit, a man after God's own heart. He would be the chosen servant of Isaiah 53, and he would crush the heads of all of our enemies, following 40 days of battling the serpent Satan in the wilderness. He would use the weapon of our enemy, death, and defeat death, and he invites his people who trust in him to share in his victory. This greater son of David would be crowned with power, wealth, wisdom, and might, because he is the lamb who was slain. And he would receive a bride and make free all who are blood-related to him as their savior and as their substitute, their champion. This Davidic king, through his victory, would see that all the earth would know that there is a God in Israel and that the Lord saves for the battle is his. And because we are in Christ, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. Christ has won it. And so wielding the spirit, uh, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and empowered by the gospel, we and our champion move ahead against Satan, against sin, against death and hell, because we know the gates of hell shall not prevail or stand against us. No, these giants have been decapitated by our good shepherd, our great shepherd. And now you and I know the rest of the story. Our time is late, so let me close us this morning in prayer. We'll not sing, and following my prayer, we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you so much for the story of David and Goliath, the story I learned as a little boy, and uh, one that I read over and over and over and over. And yet, Lord, I, I fear that I didn't understand it as I should have, uh, because I thought I could be a David. And I could go out and sling rocks and kill giants, and yet if I were to take on the giants of this world, uh, I would certainly be defeated. Uh, I do not have the strength or the wisdom or the might to take on sin and to take on death and to take on Satan. I, I, I am a, I'm a poor, poor specimen to do anything like that. Now what I needed and what you gave is a champion. And you gave us a son of David, even our Lord Jesus Christ, who took the field of battle on our behalf, won the day, and now we share in his glorious victory. And so, Lord, may we this day 
indeed to praise Him and glorify Him for who He is and for what He has done and rejoice in the fact that because we are in Him, all the spoils of victory are also ours. We did not achieve it. He did it. We simply rejoice and celebrate what He has done for us. And Lord, we will celebrate this day. And Lord, we will celebrate forever thanking you that the giant of sin, Satan, death, hell, and the grave was crushed at a place called the skull, Golgotha, through our champion, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.